A note to our awesome listeners outside of the United States. In the tale you're about to hear, Uncle Bob uses the terms first floor and ground floor interchangeably. And when he refers to the second floor, he's talking about the level above that. So a two-story house would have a first floor, otherwise known as a ground floor, and a second floor. Uncle Bob apologizes for the English language and its regional weirdness. How many shadows can fall on one man? Welcome to Uncle Bob's Campfire. Bob is going down, part one, double flower. We could get rain tonight. I doubt it's anything to worry about. It was 4.30 in the afternoon, and I was in bed. Also, I couldn't move, and the bed was in a room that wasn't mine, and I was wearing clothes that weren't mine. My head was tilted to one side, and I was facing a wall, where an alarm clock displayed the time, and blackness was in the windows. Would you believe that I was the guest of honor at the funeral? The funeral was for Randy. His mother called on a morning a few weeks ago, just after I dropped you off from her last camping trip. Randy had passed, she said, of natural causes, a heart issue that only revealed itself the minute he died. She knew I was his friend and roommate from her college days and I'd want to know. Here's what made things truly awkward. I hadn't talked to Randy for years. It wasn't a simple case of us going our separate ways. He despised me. Yes, we had been best friends once, but to him, I was irresponsible and had no respect for other people's property. At least, that's what he told me the last time we spoke, about two decades ago. By spoke, I mean him yelling while I silently packed my bags. I had never been so happy to move to a different apartment. But what was I going to tell Emma Cutler? That her son was a jerk who cared about cars more than people? That I was a little creeped out that she had somehow found a phone number that I had only gotten two weeks before? Instead, I offered all the polite condolences I could muster. It wasn't enough. Nope. She had an invitation. The funeral is tomorrow, she said, and we'd love to have you join us. I expressed the utmost regret that I lived so far away. We really want you here, she said. It would mean so much to have his best friend at the funeral. My hollow grief left me numb and speechless. Don't worry about the plane ticket, dear, she said. It's all been arranged. Check your inbox. We'll see you in a few hours. Randy would have shed no tears if I had dropped dead. But how could I say no to his grieving mother? And there it was in the inbox of the email account I only gave out to family members. My round-trip ticket, free of charge and excuses. Your Aunt Jamie, unfortunately, had no objections to me going. She even made sure I packed my yellow tie, which was my favorite. Before I knew it, I was in the sky, sitting in first class, wondering how I had ended up in this situation. I met my ride at the baggage claim. He didn't hold a sign with my name on it. He just walked up to me and introduced himself. Gerald was a twenty-something guy with fresh tattoos and a man bun. He didn't offer to help me with my suitcase. When we got to his jeep, he wouldn't let me sit in the front. Oh no, that seat of honor was bestowed upon his white cat. 
I got to sit in the back, next to the bottles of water and bags of chips, to which he had taped labels proclaiming the passenger was welcome to consume them for 10 to $25 each. But the most impressive thing about Gerald wasn't his in-your-face entrepreneurship. It was the fact that he could say his pet's name with a straight face. When Destroyer of Worlds had finished her loud purring about her superiority, I asked Gerald how far the Cutler House was from the airport. He told me it was out of the city, way out of town. An hour if there were no windstorms. Why would they live so far out? I asked. I thought they were, I mean, they could probably afford to live anywhere. No complaints here, Gerald said. It's not a bad gig and the hours are flexible. I tutor first year architecture students for my other job. All I know is the Cutlers pay good money to me and a couple of others to go back and forth with guests and groceries. I was confused by this. Oh, Gerald said, they don't have a car. At least, not at the house. Parking for more than a couple hours there would be crazy. Gerald scratched Destroyer of Worlds behind the ears. He wouldn't tell me any more. I would just have to see it. Our journey took us through mountains, where the only trees were the burned remnants of some forgotten fire. Cabins, once plentiful, gradually dispersed until they were gone. After a few minutes, we came to a swift, narrow creek. Gerald said it was nicknamed the River of the Lonely Dead, due to a history of people swimming and drowning alone there. When we crossed a bridge, the terrain changed again. We were in a wide valley, even more bare than the mountains. The road itself was the only feature, a ribbon of fresh gravel among a desert of reddish dirt. The air felt heavy and sweaty. Gerald turned up the AC. It's always unbearably hot out here, even in the winter, he said. There was nothing in front of us, not even sagebrush, just the shadows of peaks in the far horizon and the speckled gray road. Once, though, I thought I caught a glimpse of a car in the distance. We're halfway there, Gerald announced. He gestured to something ahead. I'm legal doing 40 miles an hour here, in case you wanted to know. I barely saw the speed limit sign before we passed it. Its upper half was sticking out of the ground. Gerald was driving oddly, too. He avoided the deeper tire tracks embedded in the gravel. He didn't seem to mind little rocks flying everywhere and dinging against glass and paint. A few miles later, he pointed to another sunken sign. Only one blue corner was visible. Some fool tried to adopt this road two months ago, Gerald said. What was he going to do, pick up the litter that had already sunk into the dirt? You don't adopt roads like this, or let them anywhere near your family tree. He found it hilarious. Even Destroyer of Worlds purred at the do-gooder stupidity. I gave Gerald my most convincing fake laugh. So anyway, this is a state highway, he said. Pavement would never work, and only the state can afford to give the stretch a new layer of gravel on a regular basis. If you can afford to buy a politician, the politician can afford to maintain your road. That explanation wasn't good enough. I asked my question again. Why would they live all the way out here in the first place? Gerald simply replied, Well, some people really hate people. He pointed at a shadow that was forming a couple miles in front of us. Speaking of their lovely abode, a secondary road covered with the same gravel as the main one curved to the Cutler house. Gerald glanced in the rearview mirror and chuckled to see my mouth open as I took in the building. We errand boys and girls nicknamed it the House of the Double Flower. A real palace, you know. Hardly a palace, and I had my doubts it was real. At first glance, that is, if you studied it from the corner of your eye, it was a simple two-story white building with solar panels on the top. It was one house, but you could have easily referred to it as two separate but identical houses, with one on top of the other like toys. 
The two levels weren't just built alike. Everything was the same on the outside. The gated wooden porch on the first floor was a gated balcony on the second. The front door had a scratch and a dent on the right side. The second floor door leading to the balcony also had a door with a scratch and a dent. The oddest part, though, were the iron beams going from the top of the first floor, just below its roof, and sloping down into the large rocks that formed a jagged ring around the house. Iron beams also protruded from the second floor, angled the same ways, crossing in the same places. The only difference was that the claws of the top beams hung in the air, not attached to anything. The result was something that looked like one flower stacked on top of another, with black petals drooping. I must have looked like an open-mouthed nincompoop, because Gerald laughed again. Yeah, a real palace, he repeated. Think of this valley as an ocean, and the metal bars that go from the house to the boulders as anchors. We can't have houses disappearing into the ground, can we? All I could think to say was the brilliant boulders? Those rocks must go down pretty deep not to sink. Gerald waved to the driver of another jeep, the vehicle we had seen ahead of us. The driver was just backing away from the house, and she waved back. A couple of adults with young children and too many suitcases were making their way to the porch. Most of the family arrived yesterday and this morning, Gerald said. You're the second to last carload we're dropping off today. More children burst out of the house. One of them held a soccer ball. It triggers me to see kids out here. I went camping under the stars in this area once, and I woke up at midnight with my chest and half my face covered in dirt. Gerald said, Whatever you do out in the valley, always keep moving. I nodded, grabbed my suitcase, and got out of the jeep. The ground was dry, not quicksand. But it wasn't sand either. It was a fine red dust. And the children's laughter couldn't hide the valley's windless silence. Gerald honked behind me. I turned to see him rubbing his index finger and thumb together. A tip? For the guy who gave his front seat to a cat? Was he serious? I opened the front passenger door, and Destroyer of Worlds bounded past me and toward a group of delighted children. The cat ran through little legs and disappeared around the back of the house. Gerald took my money before I could apologize. Someday the ground is going to swallow that cat, he said. I like to say it's the first time she's done anything like this, but animals, you know? He checked his watch. I've got a tutoring appointment I have to rush to. I'm not scheduled to make any trips here tomorrow, but I'll swing by to pick up Destroyer of Worlds. He tried to sound casual about it, but he gave his man bun a worried tug. When I shut the door, he didn't waste any time getting out of there. I turned my attention to the children. They had stopped kicking the ball and were gathered in a circle, holding hands, shouting, One, two, three, stomp! One, two, three, stomp! With each stomp, they jumped more or less at the same time. The ball in the center shivered a little. It's sinking! It's sinking! One boy shouted. Not by much, another boy said. Jump harder! Children noticed me watching. One by one, they turned. The look on their faces was almost... reverence? A little girl with a drippy nose stepped forward and asked me, Are you Cousin Randy? Well, that caught me off guard. I stammered something about being there for Randy's funeral. I know he's dead, she said. Are you Cousin Randy? The door, the one on the ground floor, opened, and a silver-haired woman with rosy cheeks rushed onto the porch. She was wearing a simple gray dress and sparkling purple high heels. I had never seen anyone move that fast in heels, but they could have been running shoes to her. I dragged my suitcase behind me and met her halfway. The iron beams left a space wide enough around the porch for me to walk around them without touching. I tried to shake her hand. However, she gave me a mama bear hug. She told me over and over how much it meant to her that I was there. When I could breathe again, I said, 
Thank you for having me, Mrs. Cutler. At this, her rosy cheeks got pale, and I was sure she was snarling. But her color and smile returned. Oh, no, dear. I haven't been married for a long time. No thanks to that cheating lout. I miss Cutler. Come with me, please. So happy to have you here. So happy. She led me onto the porch, and thus below the balcony. I followed the rhythm of her high heels on the wood. Inside, I found myself in a wide living room crammed with people. They were on couches, chairs, and whatever they could sit on. Before Miss Cutler could introduce me to anyone, a bald man with frown lines pushed his way toward me. He shook my hand in a crushing grip and nudged me into a bookshelf filled with dust-covered tomes of philosophy and plays that I'm sure no one in that house had ever read. He unrolled a yellowed set of blueprints and thrust them into my face. They depicted a house and, judging by the lines protruding from the exterior of the structure like an irregular sunburst, it was the Cutler, um, palace. Decades ago, Tom, your father drew these up from the existing structure. The loudness of his voice told me he was probably partially deaf. He also oversaw the construction. He did a superb job, and I expect you to have his standard of quality for the next floor. Miss Cutler gave his shoulder a squeeze. Wallace, she said, this is Bob. The dozens of conversations in the living room hushed in an instant. The man rolled up the blueprints. His smile was wide, toothy, and fake. Pardon me, Bob. Folks around these parts call me Uncle Wally. He shook my hand vigorously. The contractor is coming the day after the funeral, isn't he, Emma? My mistake, my mistake. I get so excited sometimes. It's an honor to have you with us, Randy's best friend and all. A lanky redhead near the fireplace clapped, and the rest of the room burst into applause. Since I don't even know how to react when people sing me happy birthday, all I could do was stand there and feel the blood rush to my nose and cheeks. Miss Cutler took me out of my misery by motioning her relatives out of the way and leading me through the living room. Just before we were in the hallway, I noticed the casket. There was Randy in a baggy green suit. He'd lost weight since we last met. The mortician must have tried to make him look peaceful and even curled his lips into a smile. Randy looked angry anyway. So, everyone was here tonight for a wake. A very informal, boisterous wake. I wasn't in love with the idea of sleeping in the same house as a corpse, but I told myself that as long as my bed wasn't next to the casket, I'd be fine. The hallway spanned the entire width of the house. Like the rest of the place, it wasn't carpeted. It had a wooden floor that was interspersed with rugs that alternated between bright red, bright blue, and fluorescent purple. As we passed some of the bedrooms, I noticed air mattresses and sleeping bags scattered all over the place. I wondered if the second floor was as crammed with cutlers as this one. It was impressive, though, that everyone kept their mess in the bedrooms and not as much as a sock spilled into the hallway. The only piece of junk there was a long wooden pole leaning against a wall. At the end of the hall were two large bedrooms. I assumed the first one we passed was where my hostess slept. Most of the things, clothes, knickknacks, pictures of her and Randy when he was little, were sticking out of moving boxes that formed a tower in front of the closed closet door. The only things not packed were the blankets, laced curtains, and doilies on the desk and nightstand. The other room, our destination, had the air of a time capsule. Nothing was in boxes here. In fact, I had the feeling the room was supposed to remain as it was until the end of the world. Near the neatly made bed was a closet with a body-sized mirror on the closed door. 
and covering the dark blue walls were tattered posters of Green Day, Blink-182, and Britney Spears I hadn't seen since I roomed with Randy. The room was spacious enough for a wide desk with an alarm clock that displayed cherry red numbers. Next to the clock was a worn piece of paper, Randy's schedule. There was hardly a point to it. It showed meals, breakfast at 9, lunch at 1, and dinner at 6. Everything else was blocked out for sleep or meditation. Randy never seemed like the contemplate-your-navel type. Near the desk was the room's crowning feature, a window that looked onto the main road, the only thing to see for miles. This whole room to myself? I can't, I said. I'm sure some of the families with kids would make much better use of the space here. But Miss Cutler wouldn't let me refuse because who better to sleep in Randy's room than his best friend? I unzipped my suitcase and draped my funeral clothes on the desk chair. I never could pack nice clothes without wrinkling them. She grabbed my arm above the elbow. What is that? She demanded. Just a semi-casual shirt, I said. They were having a two-for-one sale on the short sleeve button-ups last week. You could say I'm a sucker for plaid. Your scar, she said. It looks like a spider. How did that happen? That one would have taken way too long to explain. As I concocted a story about a workplace accident, Uncle Wally came rushing down the hall. He was clutching papers. He asked his sister what was wrong. Oh, Wallace, it's all ruined, she said. Randy never had a scar like that. She held up my arm. Wally laughed. Emma, now who's forgetting? Bob won't be wearing a short sleeve tomorrow. Actually, sir, I said, I only brought this short sleeve dress shirt. I stuffed my suitcase so fast I didn't think to bring a sports coat or anything. It won't matter. He thrust the papers at me. I'm not the contractor, I said. It's for tomorrow, dear, Miss Cutler said. The rose color had returned to her cheeks. You're giving the eulogy. She patted my hand when she saw my terror. You don't need to worry about writing a speech, she said. Just memorize the facts. We'll help you present when the time comes. I tried to protest, but she shook her head and told me, Randy specifically asked that you give the eulogy. Wait, I said. I thought his death was sudden. I think he had some sense he'd pass early, she said. He told me for years that you were the one he wanted to give his eulogy. Isn't the world strange? She turned to leave. Now that I had somewhere to put my suitcase, I felt free to follow her back to the living room. But Wally turned and pointed to the schedule. Three hours till dinner, he said. You better have the facts memorized by then. He closed the door behind him. I was alone in the dead man's room. The papers Uncle Wally had given me had been typed on an old typewriter that blotched the E, O, R, and T, so it was a little hard to read at times. They weren't numbered, but I found a pencil and did so. Lucky me. I got to memorize the contents of 26 pages. The papers were a long list of Randy's life events with a few details. Technically speaking, I wasn't giving a eulogy as much as a summary of his life. That made me feel a little better. There was no need for me to come up with empty praise. <sighs> Randy started kindergarten at Golden Spire School, one of those private schools where both boys and girls wear ties. His first kiss was in second grade to a girl named Kate. Side note, she died in a car crash when they were in ninth grade and living in different states. His favorite movies were The Truman Show and Arsenic and Old Lace. He could type 75 words a minute. He always excelled at math. He avoided driving in the autumn and winter months because he hated snow so much. And Cutler family traditions were sacred to him. Not simply spray painting a live Christmas tree or wearing black every Independence Day. During college, 
he was temporarily cut off from his family's fortune, according to the Cutler custom. What better way to understand the common people than to live like them? He had ramen noodles and roommates, though the eulogy papers named none of us. He also had an early morning janitor job, which he used to pay cash for a slightly used 2003 Toyota Camry. He loved that he earned every penny to buy that car. That one, I knew. Some things were glossed over, like how the Camry was totaled when he was a student, or the fact that his parents divorced before he was born. I also noticed that his life after college was hardly mentioned, but I had to remind myself I was cramming for a eulogy or a summary of life or whatever, not a biography. After a few hours of staring at the pages, what else was I supposed to do? I thought I had a pretty good handle on Randy's life. Yes, it can be hard to know how to feel when someone who hates you drops dead, but I hope that having me give the eulogy was Randy's attempt at reconciliation. I should have felt grateful, even blessed, to have this kind of closure, but if he truly wanted to make things right, why didn't he just reach out to me like a normal person? Once, during study time, I got up to stretch my legs. I didn't dare leave the room, I'll be honest. Something wasn't right with Uncle Wally, and I didn't want him to find me wandering the hall before my three hours were up. In a moment of curiosity and boredom, I tried to open the closet, but it was locked. I went back to the eulogy. I nearly fell off the bed when the alarm clock started shrieking. I'm not kidding. I had never heard beeps that rattled my rib cage like that. I pounded the clock for silence. According to Randy's schedule, it was dinner time. My stomach was growling. I had only eaten airplane pretzels on the way. I realized the house was quiet. I opened the door and peeked into the hallway. No one. But I smelled roasted chicken. I went down the hall, past the living room, and into the kitchen and dining room. No one was there, and the oven was off. My brain must have been exhausted from all that studying because it was only then that I realized everyone, including the chicken, must be upstairs. The ceiling right above me creaked to confirm this. That's when I realized something else. Neither the long hallway nor the living room had a staircase, and all the doors led to bedrooms or bathrooms, none of which contained a single stair. I checked. The way up, I concluded, must be outside. I went out onto the porch and into the front area. I hesitate to call it a yard, as it was just the weird dirt, the rock ring, and those iron beams. I was alone out here too, not surprising. I walked around the strange building. Not only was my search for stairs fruitless, but the curtains in the second floor windows were drawn, so I couldn't even see anyone. I did find something attached to the rear of the house. Under the kitchen window was a featureless gray box the size of a typical microwave oven. Spreading from it were tubes and pistons that went around and above the window and disappeared into the exterior wall at the same height as the origin of the iron beams. I looked up further, and not to my surprise, saw an identical gray box on the second floor, positioned beneath an identical window, with the same gadgetry leading to the second floor's beams. I couldn't open the box on the first floor since it was padlocked, but the one on the second floor was not. Security by inaccessibility, I guess. Whatever the boxes were, they certainly weren't a way of getting from one level of the house to another. I accepted my defeat and went back inside. Being alone in a house inhabited by unseen people and a corpse was a little depressing. I would return to Randy's room and wait for someone to come down. As I made my way through the hall, I noticed a long rectangle in the ceiling. Below it, still leaning against the wall, was the pole I'd assumed was junk. 
I stood on the red rug directly under the rectangle. The floor was lower here, just barely, and I would have never noticed if I weren't standing in that exact spot. I took the pole and tapped the rectangle in the ceiling. It tipped toward me and became an opening. Something inside the tilted tile groaned, and a set of wooden stairs unfolded itself until it was inches above my toes. Now I could hear silverware clattering on plates, adults talking, and children giggling. I was impressed that with all the noise coming from the second floor, I could only hear that squeaky floorboard in the dining room until I opened the ceiling. I climbed the stairs. Hey, that chicken was smelling good. I found myself in a hallway, identical to the first, of course, except it didn't have a pole. No rectangle was cut into the ceiling here, but someone had drawn the shape of one in pencil, probably for the next floor that was going to be built onto the house. The bedrooms up here were just as full of suitcases and bedding as those on the first floor, though it was a relief that the luggage at least was different. I mean, the second floor wasn't actually some weird mirror universe of the first, though the floor plan dared you to think that way. Still, I wouldn't have yelled in complete surprise if the living room had another corpse in it. I was relieved to be wrong, but it was otherwise the same as the ground floor. The furniture was the same. It too had a fireplace, and the dusty books on the shelves were all familiar. But that wasn't as unnerving as when I entered the dining room. Once again, every conversation stopped. People, including those at the kids' table, stopped in mid-sentence or mid-bite. I tried to act casual. I took a plate from a counter and started toward the garlic chicken and Hawaiian rolls. Miss Cutler rushed from one of the tables and stood between me and the food. She yanked the plate from my hands. I'm sorry, Bob, but this won't be happening. I had no words. I wanted to shake her and say, Look here, lady, you say I'm your guest of honor, but you hold me up in the dead guy's bedroom for hours, and you won't even let me eat? Instead... I said, I'm sorry, Miss Cutler, but I don't understand. You can't eat with us now, a man who looked like Wally but with more hair said. The girl with the drippy nose pointed at me and whispered something to a boy who gave a solemn nod. Miss Cutler took me by the arm and escorted me out of the dining room. Your meal will be waiting for you downstairs, dear. In the distance, an engine hummed and gravel popped. Hear that? Your food is already here. And tell that disgusting creature he can sleep in the living room. She didn't move from the opening in the hallway floor until I had descended the stairs. She yanked at the top step. The stairs folded and the opening above me swung shut. I was banished. Someone was knocking on the front door. It was a slow, uncertain knock. And I approached the door with slow, uncertain steps. I opened it to find a grizzled, wide-eyed man holding a suitcase in calloused hands. Our mutual stare was only broken by him turning to wave goodbye to his ride, a pickup with oversized tires. I didn't know what to say until I saw the logo on the man's polo shirt. It read, Hill Trucking. Oh, you're Randy's dad, I said. Come in. He dropped the suitcase and was next to the casket before I could close the door. Poor Randy, he said. He stood over his son's body for a few awkward minutes until he finally said, I'm sorry things never worked out. He seemed to see me for the first time. Oh, I don't recognize you. Are you one of Randy's Cutler cousins? I told him Randy and I had been roommates. He relaxed. Ah, you're the rascal who totaled Randy's car. The guest of honor, I'm told. He waved my apologies away. It just seems like that always came up the last few times Randy and I spoke. 
He motioned me to one of the couches near the wall and took a McDonald's bag out of his coat pocket. Emma told me it was my duty to feed myself and the guest of honor tonight. He said, sorry, it's all I could find at the airport. Despite his grief, he liked to talk. He was just a simple trucker, he said, and he insisted I call him Martin. I got him to open up about a lot of things that seemed trivial. All the time he spent on the road, his favorite diners, the Labor Day party he and his current wife, Donna, would put on for the neighbors every year, his opinion on true crime podcasts, and how he used to play the tenor sax. It had only been a few hours since I stepped off the airplane, but I found myself craving normal conversation even more than the cold McChicken. At one point, he abruptly interjected, What did Emma say about me? But I vowed not to lie to Martin. I told him she had called him a disgusting creature and a cheating lout. She still runs with that story, he said. I divorced her, and I didn't even meet Donna until three years later. I swear, she tells that lie so much, I think she's convinced herself. He showed me some family photos he had in his wallet. Randy was in none of them. Isn't she beautiful? Martin said. Martin's typical vacation was taking Donna in his truck and hitting the open road together. He had pictures of them all over the United States and Canada, including Disneyland, which I was a little jealous of. Martin had a type. Both Miss Cutler and Donna were short, petite women, but Donna's hair was always some shade of pink. She had a pretty smile and was hardly the participant ribbon wife Randy had described his stepmom as. Now I realized he probably meant Donna was middle class and not a supermodel. I asked Martin where Donna was. At this, he crumpled the greasy paper bag. The twinkle in his eyes was gone. The family. They're not right, you know. I told him I thought they were a little odd, yes. He frowned as he tried to think of a way to explain it. Getting to know the Cutlers. It's like walking into a bookstore, grabbing a random book, turning to a random page, and thinking you now know everything the bookstore offers. The Cutlers are... He was at a loss for a moment. The Cutlers came to America from England in the 1600s. Other people on the boat had religious reasons or wanted to get out of poverty. But the Cutlers, they were assassins for the highest bidder. They were effective, stealthy, and pillars in their community. So you divorced Miss Cutler because of her family history? I said. It's not really history if it's happening right now, he said. I don't mean to say they're hitmen for the mafia. They made good investments over the years. They don't need to do the, um, old family business. It's more of a pastime. I knew things were still happening in the shadows. That sweet woman I had married, the woman who carried my child, was involved in things. Like one time, I found a paper with a dozen names in her handwriting. I recognized them as people who had slighted us in some way. Whether they had charged us too much for an oil change, taken our favorite pew at church, or the acquaintance who had let his dogs relieve themselves next to our picnic. And over the next year, one by one, these folks all died in their beds or in hospitals of natural causes, in the exact order as their names on the list. I had no real proof Emma was involved, and she was insulted when I mentioned it. And I felt, if we could just get away from this house, with its metal tentacles, hidden stairs, identical floors, the secrets behind its doors, we would both be happier. But it had been in her family for generations, you see, and she was horrified. I would even suggest living anywhere else. Do you know that emptiness you get when you walk through a graveyard? That feeling of loss that goes into your toes? That's why I left Emma. That's why Donna refuses to come. And yeah, 
Randy never talked to me much and was neck deep in this cutler stuff. I'll sleep better, knowing that at least after the funeral, I'll have nothing tying me to this family. The house seemed quieter, but I'll admit, I was skeptical that the oddball, rosy-cheeked lady who ran in high heels was a serial killer. I even asked, If your ex-wife is so dangerous, why did you come, Martin? He got up and stood over Randy. He couldn't speak. He didn't have to. I muttered my thanks for dinner and pointed to some bedding on one of the couches. I told him it was his. I was in bed before the first of the Cutler clan bounded down the stairs. That night, I dreamed of Martin being killed in more ways than I can remember. Knives, electricity, dynamite, piranhas, airplanes, garbage bags. I never saw the face of his killer, but I knew it was her. I couldn't sleep with my brain insisting Martin was in danger while simultaneously insisting that he wasn't. When I couldn't resist any longer, I got out of bed and creeped down the long hall. I could only make out vague outlines and hear sleeping noises. Most of the doors were open and adults and children snored, gulped, and chewed in their sleep. When I came to the living room, I made out two inhabitants in the moonlight, and only one of them was dead. Martin was curled up on the floor next to the casket, breathing deeply. As I tiptoed the way I came, my sleepy mind was still yelling. Now it was repeating what Martin had said earlier. This house, with its metal tentacles, hidden stairs, identical floors, the secrets behind its doors. I made it back to Randy's room without anyone stirring. I felt painfully ridiculous for almost believing poor Miss Cutler was a murderous psychopath. People say all sorts of things about ex-spouses, after all. And she had just lost her only son. I was stupid, paranoid, and heartless. But Martin's words still looped in my thoughts. The secrets behind its doors. The secrets behind its doors. I didn't get back into bed. I made sure the bedroom door was shut, and I didn't dare turn on the light. The closet was locked, but it wasn't a problem. I have an old library card I carry for just an occasion. It only took me 20 seconds of wiggling the card against the mechanism to get that knob to turn. A chain dangled in front of my face and I pulled it. A yellow bulb above me blazed to life. I was in a walk-in closet. I don't know what I expected. Maybe some clothing on hangers? But the only clothes were bulging out of the drawers and the dresser at the far end. Everything else? The walls were covered in pictures and newspaper clippings. Many of the photos were of Randy's precious car, that dumb tan Toyota Camry. In one of them, he was at the used car lot, standing in front of the vehicle while he displayed the keys. Others showed the car parked in front of landmarks like the Yellowstone National Park sign or our old apartment. But in every photo of the car, Randy had written about me in dark red permanent marker. He wrote things like, Bob ruined it. The enemy of my vehicle is my enemy and Bob will pay, not with money. It culminated in the biggest picture. It was blown up to full poster size. Here Randy's car was banged up from my little road trip. I hadn't asked permission. I was a thief. The stolen car had taken a curve too fast and slammed into a tree on the way down. Unfortunately, other than a gash on the back of the head, I was fine. Totaled, he wrote. Then in small, straight letters in one corner, he added, Bob is going down. He underlined down a couple times. Framing the wrecked car were more photos, but they were of me, all in the past decade and a half. 
During that time, I had been posting these images on blogs and social media without even imagining that my old roommate was not only seeing them, but printing them and decorating them with bat wings, devil's horns, X's in the eyes, fangs, and Hitler mustaches. As for the newspaper clippings, they were of articles I had written over the years. The stories were about everything from prison contracts to parent-teacher meetings. Other than my byline, the only thing they had in common were mistakes. He would circle any factual or grammatical error with comments like Ignoramus, Incompetent, How did he get a job? Can Bob tie his shoes without drooling on the laces? The closet was a shrine to my fallibility and a monument to my worthlessness. I tugged the chain and the closet was in darkness again. I made sure its door locked behind me and I returned to bed. The eulogy was going to be silent about Randy's life after college because there had been no life. No career, no marriage, no children, no hobbies. Randy and the outside world had said farewell long ago. He must have spent his days in that closet in meditation, writing little insults, staring down the object of his hate. When he took his last breath, was he thinking about me? Was he willing his imminent death to fall upon me instead? His mother had to have known about all this. I blinked, and it was morning. When I awoke on the day of the funeral, the clothes that I had set on the desk chair were gone. My short sleeve shirt, slacks, and favorite tie had been replaced by a green suit, long sleeved white shirt, and a blue tie. Miss Cutler must have been serious about covering the scar on my arm. At least she had left my socks, shoes, and belt alone. My suitcase, wallet, keys, and phone were also untouched. I figured making a stink wouldn't be worth it. All I had to do was give that eulogy and get out. After what I had seen the night before, being in my own home, feeling loved, it seemed like a fantasy in the heavy reality of this house. The suit was a little loose, but I tightened my belt and made it work. As I adjusted the tie, I realized that from across a room, I could pass for the corpse's twin, just as the second floor was the twin of the first. The tall cutler with the red hair was about to knock on the door when I opened it. He thrust a small, sealed bag of store-bought sugar cookies at me. Breakfast, he said. The funeral's in a few minutes. As he spun around, I called after him. What did the family eat? Eggs, waffles, bacon, he said. Family privilege. I was hungry. And you know I'm not opposed to cookies for breakfast in general. But I felt my ears burn. Some honor the guest of honor was getting. I caught the whiff of potatoes, which made things worse. I was so preoccupied with my indignation and nervousness that I almost didn't register that people's luggage and sleeping bags were gone from their rooms. The boxes in Miss Cutler's room had also been carried away. The living room had been rearranged with the couches and fold-out chairs forming a dozen rows. Martin sat in the back, circles under his eyes and an untouched cookie bag in his lap. Some people clapped when I entered, but since no one motioned me to sit by them, I took the empty, hard metal chair next to Martin. Brandy's father wasn't just tired, he was disgusted. Did they wake you up early when they set up the chairs? Was all I could think of to say. Martin edged away from me. What had I done? Miss Cutler stood next to the casket and called for quiet. She looked regal in her cream white dress and blue heels. I expected the service would start with amazing grace or something, but there were no songs, no prayers. The program was short. So short, that once Miss Cutler thanked everyone for being there, she said, We will now have the pleasure of hearing from Randy. Come up here, please. Everyone's gaze was on me. 
Martin's face was turning red, and he stifled an angry yell. Oh, you mean the eulogy, I said. I got out of my chair and tried not to worry about all the people watching. Once I had taken Miss Cutler's place at the front, though, I realized why Martin was so disturbed, why I filled him with such abhorrence. With all the family crowded in the living room, I hadn't looked at Randy when I came in. The dead man was in a different outfit, dark slacks, a short-sleeved white shirt, and a yellow tie. Those were my clothes. And I? I was wearing the ones the corpse had been dressed in the day before. Tell us about yourself, Randy, Uncle Wally said. I began. Uh, Randy Hill was born in this house on April. Uncle Wally motioned me to stop. No, Randy, he said, as yourself. I hadn't noticed before, but the suit I was wearing had the faint scent of embalming fluid. I tried to visualize my own house on a summer day. Your Aunt Jamie and I were having a quiet game of chess in the golden afternoon, but I couldn't make out her face. I attempted to see my co-workers' shocked reactions to the ill-timed joke I had shared at an office party, only I couldn't make out any expressions. I tried to relive the hike you and I went on during our last camping trip, but only your shape was there. Every pleasant thing was the memory of a shadow of a dream across an ocean. I would do anything to leave the house of the double flower. The sooner the funeral ended, the sooner I would leave for the airport. But even the airport seemed unreal. The funeral and the house were everything. Yes, I said. I was born here, next to the fireplace, where you're sitting, uh, cousin Jake. Uncle Wally, Miss Cutler, and the entire clan smiled in approval. Martin didn't try to hide his revulsion. Once I had given them the bare outline of Randy's life, stopping, of course, once he went to college, the questions came. Why did you study math, Randy? Because numbers do what need to be done and have no emotional attachments. Did you take piano lessons? No, because Mom didn't want to buy two pianos. What was your favorite meal? Roasted chicken with Hawaiian rolls. Did you ever learn to ride a bike? Not very well. It's not easy to ride a bike around here. I could only ride one in town, and I had better things to do anyway. I had studied so well the words flowed. I found my voice getting a little deeper in imitation of Randy. I rubbed the back of my neck from time to time as Randy did too. Giving an interactive eulogy was a book report mixed with an improv performance, and I wasn't terrible. If it weren't for Martin shaking his head at the disgusting insanity of it all, I would have even admitted I was having fun. The end of the eulogy came with the sound of an engine growling down the driveway and the ensuing knock on the door. I had just answered a question about Randy's favorite action figures. Miss Cutler asked me to sit down, and Uncle Wally got the door. I found an empty chair far away from Martin. The new arrival was a little man with big spectacles, who was constantly looking over his shoulder at the vehicle behind him. It was a long hearse with oversized tires. He muttered apologies at interrupting, but Uncle Wally assured him the funeral was over and he could take the body to the cemetery. The mortician was relieved and expressed gratitude that he didn't have to park here for long. He was in no mood for his hearse to get stuck in the sinking dirt. He and a few of his undertaker underlings closed the casket and wheeled it into the driveway. There was no ceremony. As the casket was shoved into the back, the undertaker asked, Which one of you is Martin Hill? Martin stood immediately. You're needed for the graveside service. Please come with me. Martin was only too happy to oblige. 
Without glancing at me or anyone else, he grabbed his suitcase from a corner and practically sprinted into the hearse. It drove off with Randy and my favorite tie inside. Miss Cutler muttered something about Martin leaving being the best part of the funeral plans, and she hoped he enjoyed himself during the one-person graveside service for an empty vessel. Now that only family is here, she said to everyone, let's hear it for Randy. I couldn't tell if Clan Cutler was applauding me or the dearly departed. Was there a difference? The adults started folding chairs and moving the couches to their normal positions. The children grabbed that soccer ball and rushed out the door. It was a good opportunity for me to duck out and go to my, I mean, Randy's room. Miss Cutler grabbed my arm and asked where I was going. I told her I was going to pack since she had booked a flight for me that night. Without eating? We'll make sure you get to where you need to go in plenty of time. She led me up the stairs into the dining room. A few of the relatives were gathered around the table already and in the center of the table were steaming casserole dishes filled with cheese, cornflakes, and mashed potatoes. It took me a second to realize what the food was, and that I hadn't partaken of its creamy greatness since my parents forced me to go to a few memorial services when I was a kid. I was beholding one of the most sacred and delicious traditions of the American West, funeral potatoes. Uncle Wally pulled out the chair at the head of the table. Here you go, Randy, he said. Why would they still call me that? Uncle Wally kissed his sister on the top of the head. I'll do a final sweep of the ground floor and double check everything's out of your bedroom before we flip the switch, he said. As he left, Miss Cutler gave me an extra generous helping of funeral potatoes from the casserole dish nearest me. Everyone else took funeral potatoes from the other dishes. They waited to eat until I had put the first spoonful in my mouth. At first, I was ecstatic. These funeral potatoes were creamier and crunchier than I had remembered. But an aftertaste grew in my mouth. A rotting one. I choked a little, and a cousin nudged a glass of water toward me and said, Eat up, Randy! I nearly spit out the water when claws scratched my leg. At my feet was that white cat. The children going in and out of the house must have let Destroyer of Worlds inside, and the animal had managed to clamber up the stairs unseen. She too craved funeral potatoes. I took another bite, and it was just as tasty and faintly rotten as the first. Destroyer of Worlds scratched me impatiently. As everyone else talked among themselves, I took another spoonful, raised it to my lips, looked around, and dropped it onto the floor. Destroyer of Worlds scarfed it up. She gave my ankle another scratch. I could live with this arrangement. No way I was going to finish what was on my plate and I didn't want trouble with the Cutlers, not when I was so close to leaving. So for the next ten minutes, I would give Destroyer of Worlds more funeral potatoes when no one was looking. I had to stop when I could see the bottom of the plate, and the conversation turned toward me. You did a wonderful job, Randy, a woman with a faint mustache said. I waved her compliment away. I just said what you all wanted me to say. Miss Cutler, these potatoes are delicious, she beamed. You always did have a soft spot for spuds, Randy. The cutlers at the table seemed to be waiting for a speech or something. I tried to oblige them. I do appreciate all of you letting me invade your private family, uh, event, I said. Randy was, well, to be honest, he and I weren't always on the best of terms, but we were good friends at one time, and I'm glad I could help give you closure. Bob hurt you very much, Miss Cutler said. Her voice was a low growl. You talked about that till your final day, Randy. I'm sorry, 
I managed. I'm honored you wanted me to give the eulogy, but... Something fuzzy was on my foot. I had forgotten about Destroyer of Worlds. I nudged her with my other toe, but the cat had fallen onto my shoe and wasn't moving. At all. I got up and mumbled something about needing to use the bathroom. The dining room was a whirlpool. I couldn't smell the funeral potatoes or the embalming fluid anymore, and I wanted to puke. I made for the front door. No one ran after me. I fell before I got to the stairs. Rest in peace, my son, Miss Cutler said from far away. I love you. Oh, what? Get in your tent. We'll finish this next time. I'm soaked. This episode was written and performed by Robert Patton. Uncle Bob's Campfire is a Curious Realms production.